0: Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 82, Harrow. The surroundings of Harrow during the time of Winston's entrance were very different than today. Although just to the northwest of London, Windsor could be seen on a clear day, the school was only a dot among open fields and the rolling English landscape. The old boys or old Harrovians, graduates from Harrow before Churchill's time, talked in rather tense tones of the changes coming to their beloved school. The railway was getting too close, bicycles were all over the place, and, quote, annihilating distance, unquote. These former students were happy with the school as it was. Change was automatically viewed as bad. Herovian traditions were sacred and guarded fanatically. One tradition was that the food was horrible. But that's the way it had always been, so... The new students, once they found this out, needed hefty allowances in order to buy enough outside food to survive. So the private tuck shops on high and west streets did very well during the semesters. It was the same with any books not of classical literature get them in town. Another tradition was the boys always saw their masters or teachers as the natural enemy, as in, it felt right, the unspoken war between the two groups. And Winston's time at Harrow would bring this particular tradition to new heights. Tradition also dictated that the new boys learn the school's patriotic songs. Here is the stanza from one. So today, and oh, if ever, duty's voice is ringing clear. Bidding men to brave endeavor, be our answer. We are here. In 1940, Churchill visited Harrow and listened as the boys sang the school songs. He claimed it brought back wonderful memories. But Churchill, just like many other old boys, remembered what they wanted to remember, or how they wanted to remember it. This seemed to be a tradition, too. And yet another tradition was activated when a harrow boy went on to distinguish himself. Then someone living in the village, for example, Wright Cooper, who owned a confection store during Winston's time, remembered the boy this way. Winston was a good boy, honest and generous. Boys crowded around his table at the store. He was very popular, always had everyone in stitches. His parents visited a lot, and Winston was extremely happy at Harrow. Now, the truth. He wasn't a good boy. He was a constant disciplinary problem. He wasn't generous. He had to constantly write to his mother for money. The other boys weren't in stitches around Winston, but they did keep their distance from Winston. Except, that is, when they needed him to shine their shoes, or make their beds, or do some other menial task. This was another of Harrow's traditions. Winston did this for three years. His parents each visited him once, and not together. And above all, that is to say, day to day, the boy was miserable. However, there was one part that Wright Cooper got right. Winston's high spirits, but even that's putting an extremely positive spin on the boys' doings. Sir Gerald Wollaston, a classmate, put it this way, Winston, quote, broke every rule made by masters or boys, unquote. And when not breaking rules, but he always seemed to have a good reason for the violation, he was always talking back or back chatting, as it was known then to the masters. On one occasion, after Headmaster Weldon told Winston that he had grave reason to be displeased with him, the boy replied, quote, And I, sir, have grave reason to be displeased with you, unquote. A few examples here should serve to demonstrate what Churchill's reputation was concerning Harrow, until, that is, he became the country's leader, and then the necessary whitewashing commenced. When Headmaster Weldon asked the boy, When was the last time he used bad language? The boy replied in his stammer, the stammer coming from his unhappiness, quote, well, sir, as I entered this room, I tripped over the doormat, and I'm afraid I said, damn, unquote. Sometimes honesty is not the best policy. As pets were forbidden, Winston, of course, kept two dogs in a kennel on West Street. When he found out that there were certain parts of the town that were not allowed to Harrovians, he made a point to visit there frequently. But my favorite story is when he apparently tried to kill a house full of ghosts. The Rocksworth house on Bessborough Road, again out of bounds for Harrowboys, was reportedly haunted. It was certainly abandoned. So, thinking he would blow it up, rid the area of ghosts, and bring down an unsafe dwelling. Plus, just for the fun of destroying something, as boys are wont to do. He used gunpowder, a ginger beer bottle, and a self-made fuse to create a bomb. He then lit the bomb and lowered it down into the cellar. But nothing happened. So, Winston then peered down into the hole to see what was amiss. It was at that moment the bomb decided to go off. Fortunately for history, Churchill's injuries were limited to a scorched face and singed eyebrows. Back at school, the boy who was always being warned by the headmaster that he was close to being whipped didn't hear a lecture this time. Weldon just reached for the birch. During his time at Harrow, Winston was whipped over and over, but nowhere as bad as when at St. George's. And honestly, because it wasn't as painful, Winston seemed to hold Weldon's birch in contempt. Winston was trying to get on, well, really, only tried in so much as it interested him. But politics still held the boy in thrall. But politics he was not going to get at Harrow. So, even though he was not yet 14, Winston asked his mother to introduce him to important men in Parliament. Now, here was something his mother, Jenny, could do and wanted to do. I'll just leave the details to your imagination. Invitations were sent out with her name on it, not Winston's, and soon the boy got to meet three future prime ministers, rosebery Balfour, and Asquith. But now having a taste of politics and the company of older men, Winston wanted more. So, soon after, during a school break, one of Jenny's bows, Sir Edward Carson, took Winston to the Stranger's Gallery, which overlooked the House of Commons. Of course, the boy thought of his father being there, below, giving his great speeches. Ever trying to make his father love him, the boy then realized his father could only approve if he could get elected to Parliament and give equally famous speeches. So, returning to Harrow, Winston practiced his father's style of speech in front of a mirror. Lord Randolph was known for memorizing his speeches and then delivering them quickly, his words like bullets. But after his fall from grace, the man's speeches were embittered and designed to cut. Winston, who couldn't fully understand this, copied his father anyway. Of course, his stammer from unhappiness and anxiety remained, but now was mixed with a condescending mannerism that he adopted from his father. It wasn't long before his speech practices in front of the mirror, probably unconsciously, carried over into his daily routine. Now the other boys had yet another reason to keep their distance. In fact, Winston only made one friend at Harrow, John Milbank, later Sir John Milbank, As an older boy, he probably didn't take Winston's aggressive diatribes at face value and tolerated the boy. Winston also took his studied aggressiveness home with him. His mother liked him less, but it was the Churchill's cook who took a broom to the arrogant child. As Winston neared his 14th birthday, he was physically maturing, and probably sensing this, he desired activity. He soon took up gymnastics, carpentry, and loved long walks with his dogs, the ones he wasn't supposed to have. But regardless of this change, he still hated cricket, football, and field days. He picked up on boxing and swimming, but still not sure of himself to compete against other boys directly, he refused to box with anyone his age, instead only mixing it up with a master. Besides, the idea of hitting a master probably appealed to him. But exceeding all these skills was his writing. It was precocious, certainly, but more than that, it was open and free of holding back, especially when giving his unasked opinion. Winston was in his element when wielding words. They could be a powerful tool or a weapon. He sent numerous letters to the Herovian, the school newspaper, under the name Junius Jr. He attacked this or that school policy, but as his grasp of the English language was further along or deeper than the older boys, his letters had to be edited. Don't misunderstand. The older boys loved his letters. They howled with laughter as they were meant to, but clearly this writing was not fit for a school newspaper. When Churchill found out his letters were edited, he would cry with rage. But without knowing it, the older boys were doing him a favor. The world, at least Harrow, was not yet ready for Winston, full on. But there was another side to Winston's anger and resentment, and that could be called courage. And that he had in abundance. The Harrow boys all had nannies, but would never bring them to school. It simply wasn't done. But Winston's love for Womb knew no bounds. And not only did he invite her, he walked her around everywhere, and then, on her departure, kissed her goodbye. No one would say it at the time, though one boy said years later that it was, quote, one of the bravest acts I have ever seen, unquote. Winston's selective intelligence was obvious to those who looked past the bulldog expression. The problem was, most did not. He was still the stubborn boy who only learned what he wanted to, or what he found useful. For example, the ablative absolute, absolutely necessary when learning Latin, with its various endings, could never be taken seriously by the boy. So, he refused to learn it. He claimed he couldn't memorize the formula But he had no trouble memorizing 1,200 lines of Macaulay. Then there was Winston's French accent. The less said, the better. But in essence, it was horrible. It would always be horrible. And I can relate. The result of all this was that Winston was put on report soon after arriving at Harrow. So now each week he had to discuss with the headmaster his progress in each subject to his mother he wrote quote, "of course what I should like best would be to leave this hell of a place but I cannot expect that at present" Unquote. the best sentiment from an adult about winston at this time was by his housemaster h o d davidson who wrote to jenny quote, He is so regular in his irregularity that I really don't know what to do. As far as ability goes, he ought to be at the top of his form, whereas he is at the bottom." Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't want to do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Dell Tech. There were others who spotted Winston's talents and taught to the boys' ways, as opposed to making him conform to theirs. Master C.H.P. Mayo taught him math, that it was just more than a pile of numbers that borrowed from each other. Robert Somerville broke down the classics, as well as the basics of an English sentence, into digestible parts. He also fired the boy's imagination, already lively, to literature. Thackeray, Dickens, Wordsworth, and every biography he could get his hands on was consumed by the precocious student then his fencing teacher lm moriarty asked the boy to come by after classes and together they discussed essays and history winston sat in rapt attention in short the pugnacious boy was being taught to teach himself he would always founder in the classroom or before an examination But in many ways, he was the most learned statesman once he grew into a man. When Winston was 14, he was called into the headmaster's office. There, sitting before the headmaster's desk, was a sixth former, an older boy. His paper, recently turned in, was just a little too good, and Weldon quickly guessed who the real author was. Accusations were made, confessions poured out. The boy helped Winston with his Latin, and then Winston would pace the floor, writing in lecture form, thinking on his feet, while the boy wrote down what he said. This is the first known time of how Churchill would later write his brilliant books. And he was not punished. During his first Christmas break from Harrow, Winston and Jack caught the flu, Lord Randolph, who seemed to have something against Christmas, was more angry than worried. But he hoped the boys would be all right. But after December 30th, he and Jenny wouldn't be there to find out. They were off on another holiday. Winston seemed to have recovered by the time school was back in, but he had a relapse. As his parents were God knows where, womb was on her way. She nursed the sick, lonely boy back to health. That was Womb, always there when he needed her. Did he have enough shirts? Did he get the three black waistcoats she had sent? Was he using the dozen new handkerchiefs she had recently sent him? But, heaven forbid, if he did not write her back in a timely fashion. Then her tone changed radically. But, even then, underneath it all was her love for him. With their parents gone so much of the year, the boys spent their holidays with Womb. She took them seaside to help with Winston's chest. But of note, for two years during Winston's time at Harrow, Lord Randolph rented a home at Banstead. And it was here that Winston, with Jack's help, built a great fort and a catapult that was used to sling green apples at a nearby enemy cow. Away from school, overall the boy was happy, though he missed his mum, or rather the idea of his mum. But he got mostly what he needed from Mrs. Everest. Lord Randolph's level of unhappiness was a different matter. He spent more time at the jockey club. His horses won more than average. But mostly he was getting away from those who ridiculed him, now that he was not in a position of power. With Randolph's life becoming more meaningless and his temper becoming less stable, Jenny satisfied herself with younger and younger men. She still had the figure to pull this off. And Randolph, unable not to see this, needed a change of scene. So he decided to dabble in journalism and report on the goings-on at Cape Town. This was a disaster. His oratory was well-known and now his writing was too, but in a different way. Winston wrote to his father during his time in South Africa and continued to gush over everything his father did. This, for a very short time, brightened the man's heart towards his child. But the father was not entirely to blame. Lord Randolph had reached the final stage of his disease. As one can imagine, Jenny certainly enjoyed her time during her husband's absence. During the summer of 1891, the 16-year-old Winston finally got the male support he always craved. Sort of. Some of the men Jenny was seeing could sense that the boy longed for a male relationship, and as they wanted to please his mother, Winston was invited to spend time with John Milbank. Together, they saw the naval exhibition. The next day, Winston and Count Kinsky went to see Kaiser Wilhelm II as he was at the Crystal Palace. They had other adventures together the following week, and one can imagine that Winston must have, by now, had an idea of what was happening between Kinsky and his mother. But he was young, finally having fun, and never wanted to hurt or embarrass his mother. His lips, for once, stayed shut. Back at school, his grades continued to suffer, and his mother and headmaster Weldon were beside themselves with frustration. For her part, Jenny continually wrote to him, telling him to focus on his work. Of course, these letters came from Paris, then Monte Carlo, then Mayfair. She wrote of the benefits of hard work, and applying oneself. The irony must have escaped them both. As for the boy's weak French, Jenny had a plan. As France lay right across the channel, Winston would spend his summer with a family in Rouen. Winston fought back with everything he could think of, but then tried another tact, besides blunt force. Quote, Even if the worst come to the worst, you could send me to some of your friends, unquote. Then, the next part of Jenny's plan fell into place. As he found out, he would be spending the coming holidays at Versailles with a French master from Harrow. Now, not seeing his parents at the end of the year had become a tradition, but he still had Womb, Jack, his aunts, and grandmother. Now, they were being taken away from him over French. He fought going on the second trip during the entire latter half of the year, by December, his letters were crescendos. Quote, I will do as little as I can, and the holidays will be one continual battle. Unquote. Jenny replied that she would be the one to decide. His response to this was, you may be the one deciding, but I'm the one who has to live with it. Quote, please do have a little regard for my happiness. Unquote. The fighting continued, but in the end, she won. She always won. A second-class passage was booked for the teenage boy. But honestly, and she wrote of this to her husband, that Winston was at an ugly stage. She found his company even more frustrating than ever before. Fortunately, the boy would have a better time than he imagined. Monsieur Minson, the French master, was English. So, they ate food that Churchill recognized. On Christmas Eve, they took in a play, went horseback riding, and he discovered a shop that sold toy soldiers. Cheaply. But he promised his brother Jack in a letter, quote, I won't travel second again by Jove. Unquote. The battling through letters continued between mother and son, and although Jenny seemed to retreat, she rarely posted a letter or replied to his many letters, She had still won, but so too did Winston. So far, France with the Harrowmaster had been nice, but the boy wanted more. He wanted another Kinski in his life. In this, Jinny complied, one can presume, because it didn't cost her anything. She tapped her still young-looking foot, and three gentlemen responded. They crossed the Channel and took Winston to parts of Paris his teacher would never have been able to enter. He was just over his 17th birthday and saw what money could do for one in a major city. He dined well, drank well, talked with gentlemen, and then saw a corpse. The one major incentive that worked on Churchill for this journey was Jenny promising him a week at home instead of going straight back to school. One can only assume she meant to keep her word. But in this time in England, only the father could decide if his son could miss school. So Jenny put it before Lord Randolph. The answer was a stern no. The reason behind it was that Winston's entrance exam into the Royal Military College at Sandhurst was coming up that June. But when one reads the words from his father... Quote, I do pray you, my dear boy, to make the most of every hour of your time. Unquote. It's possible to see Randolph thinking of his own life as he was in the final stage, and his temperament became even more disagreeable. Ironically, and I can't imagine this being planned out, as Jenny moved herself away from her husband, she moved closer to her son. This was not maternal instinct. Jenny was ambitious and clever, but still a woman. If she was going to have some sort of success in her life, besides social success, it had to be through a male. Jack was an even-tempered boy who would not shake the world, nor even want to shake it. Therefore, her dreams, or aspirations, would soon come to rest on her precocious, brilliant, erratic, frustrating oldest son. Humans are fickle creatures, but as their decisions affect or alter history, one could argue that history is fickle. Lord Randolph's decision for Winston to attend Sandhurst was based on a single short-lived moment in the boys' younger years. One day, Randolph popped his head into the boys' playroom and noticed the soldiers, artillery, and cavalry pieces all arranged in their proper place. He then asked his son if he would like to enter the army. Winston later wrote of this moment, quote, I thought it would be splendid to command an army, so I said yes at once. And immediately I was taken at my word. For years I thought my father, with his experience and flair, had discerned in me the qualities of military genius. But I was told later that he had only come to the conclusion that I was not clever enough to go to the bar. Unquote. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, once again, like the Battle of Britain, I think I've bitten off more than I can chew, but we'll get through it. Um, I will keep going with Churchill until I get up to 1940, but I will certainly – I can't wait like you to get back to North Africa and Greece, Rommel, and all that stuff. So we'll do that as soon as we can. Um, I wanted to offer up two different uh, audible um, choices for you this time. The first one was written by Churchill. It's called My Early Life, A Roving Commission. It covers the first 25 years of his life, Harrow, Sandhurst, uh, active duty in Cuba, uh, the Northwest Frontier of India, and then, of course, the Boer War, where he's captured, and it talks, he talks about his escape. So it's a pretty good book, and again, David Case reads it. It says a different name for the, author, uh, for the um, reader, but it's David Case, and he does a really amazing Churchill accent. I think you'll like it a lot. And the, the other one, if you want a different point of view of Churchill's life, um, this one was about his mother. Jenny Churchill, Winston's American Mother, by Anne Seba, S-E-B-B-A. Um, this one's 16 hours long. It covers a lot about Victoria, Victoria England, especially from the social side. And um, they, she, the, the author did a pretty good job. The reader does a really good job. Um, but they get a couple things wrong. They get her number of lovers wrong. Um, they guess way too high on that. But overall, it's a really good picture, and you really get a sense of um, – um, what she and at least in her own mind was trying to do for Winston by being tough on him. And it just gives you a whole nother slant to the whole Churchill story. So that was definitely worth checking out as well. Um, I would like to thank the the two newest members, jazz, William S from the UK and Jim P from British Columbia, Canada. And for uh, my two latest donations, Linda W from Madison, Wisconsin and Stephen F. From Westwood, Massachusetts. So, thank you very much. A lot of um, other books I'm having to get, so this is really coming in handy. Thank you, everyone. Um, and just to let you know, the tour, the, the website should be up and running and it will be attached to my website, World War dot Podcast.net, probably by the end of next week. Then, because it took me so long to get everything together, it looks like the tour is going to be March of next year. So the good news is you got plenty of time to think about it and and sign up or ask any questions. Um, But the website should be up soon. We're still going to cover all the um, spots I was trying to do the first time. London, Paris, Normandy, Dunkirk, um, a part of the Maginot Line. Um, General Patton's grave site and finish up in Belgium. So it looks like we're going to keep the entire package, thank goodness, and it's going to be March of next year, and you should be able to sign up soon or ask any questions you want uh, at any time, of course. Just send me an email. So I will get to um, Churchill desperately trying to get into Sandhurst next time, and we'll just plug away until we get them done and then get into um, Lend-Lease, um, what the Americans were doing in, in Britain and the, of course, the war in North Africa and Greece. Take care, everyone. And now a game of commercial chicken brought to you by progressive, where we see how long flow can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.